Part two of the Life of Saint Macrina by Saint Gregory of Nyssa, translated by W. K. Lowther Clark, B.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Macrina, the one support of her mother. And now the virtue of the great Macrina was displayed. Facing the disaster in irrational spirit, she both preserved herself from collapse and, becoming the prop of her mother's weakness, raised her up from the abyss of grief, and by her own steadfastness and imperturbability taught her mother's soul to be brave. In consequence, her mother was not overwhelmed by the affliction, nor did she behave in any ignoble and womanish way, so as to cry out at the calamity, or tear her dress, or lament over the trouble, or strike up funeral chants with mournful melodies. On the contrary, she resisted the impulses of nature, and quieted herself both by such reflections as occurred to her spontaneously, and those that were applied by her daughter to cure the ill. For then was the nobility of Macrina's soul most of all conspicuous, since natural affection was making her suffer as well. For it was a brother, and a favorite brother, who had been snatched away by such a manner of death. Nevertheless, conquering nature, she so sustained her mother by her arguments that she, too, rose superior to her sorrow. Besides which, the moral elevation always maintained by Macrina's life gave her mother the opportunity of rejoicing over the blessings she enjoyed, rather than grieving over those that were missing. Mother and daughter make further progress in the ascetic life. When the cares of bringing up a family and the anxieties of their education and settling in life had come to an end, and the property, a frequent cause of worldliness, had been for the most part divided among the children, then, as I said above, the life of the virgin became her mother's guide and led her on to this philosophic and spiritual manner of life. And weaning her from all accustomed luxuries, Macrina drew her on to adopt her own standard of humility. She induced her to live on a footing of equality with the staff of maids, so as to share with them in the same food, the same kind of bed, and in all the necessaries of life, without any regard to differences of rank. Such was the manner of their life, so great the height of their philosophy, and so holy their conduct day and night, as to make verbal description inadequate. For just as souls freed from the body by death are saved from the cares of this life, so was their life far removed from all earthly follies and ordered with the view of imitating the angelic life. For no anger or jealousy, no hatred or pride, was observed in their midst, nor anything else of this nature, since they had cast away all vain desires for honor and glory all vanity, arrogance, and the like. Continence was their luxury, and obscurity their glory. Poverty, and the casting away of all material superfluities, like dust from their bodies, was their wealth. In fact, of all the things after which men eagerly pursue in this life, there were none with which they could not easily dispense. Nothing was left but the care of divine things, and the unceasing round of prayer, and endless hymnody, coextensive with time itself, practiced by night and day, 
so that to them this meant work, and work so called was rest. What human words could make you realize such a life as this, a life on the borderline between human and spiritual nature? For that nature should be free from human weaknesses is more than can be expected from mankind. But these women fell short of the angelic and immaterial nature only in so far as they appeared in bodily form, and were contained within a human frame, and were dependent upon the organs of sense. Perhaps some might even dare to say that the difference was not to their disadvantage, since living in the body, and yet after the likeness of the immaterial beings, they were not bowed down by the weight of the body, but their life was exalted to the skies, and they walked on high in company with the powers of heaven. The period covered by this mode of life was no short one, and with the lapse of time their successes increased, as their philosophy continually grew purer with the discovery of new blessings. Peter, the youngest brother. Macrina was helped most of all in achieving this great aim of her life by her own brother Peter. With him the mother's pang ceased, for he was the latest born of the family. At one and the same time he received the names of son and orphan, for as he entered this life his father passed away from it. But the eldest of the family, the subject of our story, took him soon after birth from the nurse's breast, and reared him herself and educated him on a lofty system of training, practicing him from infancy in holy studies, so as not to give his soul leisure to turn to vain things. Thus, having become all things to the lad, father, teacher, tutor, mother, giver of all good advice, she produced such results that before the age of boyhood had passed, when he was yet a stripling in the first bloom of tender youth, he aspired to the high mark of philosophy, and, thanks to his natural endowments, he was clever in every art that involves handwork, so that without any guidance he achieved a completely accurate knowledge of everything that ordinary people learn by time and trouble. Scorning to occupy his time with worldly studies, and having in nature a sufficient instructor in all good knowledge, and always looking to his sister as the model of all good, he advanced to such a height of virtue that in his subsequent life he seemed in no whit inferior to the great Basil. But at this time he was all in all to his sister and mother, cooperating with them in the pursuit of the angelic life. Once, when a severe famine had occurred, and crowds from all quarters were frequenting the retreat where they lived, drawn by the fame of their benevolence, Peter's kindness supplied such an abundance of food that the desert seemed a city by reason of the number of visitors. DEATH OF THE MOTHER it was at about this time that the mother died, honored by all, and went to God, yielding up her life in the arms of her two children. It is worth while to give the words of blessing which she used over her children, mentioning each of the absent ones in loving remembrance, so that no single one was deprived of the blessing, and commending especially to God in her prayers those who were present with her. For as these two sat by her on each side of the bed, she touched them with her hands, and uttered these prayers to God with her dying words. 
To thee, O Lord, I give the fruit of my womb as both first fruits and tents. For this my eldest is the first fruits, and this my last born is the tenth. Each is sanctified to thee by the law, and they are votive offerings to thee. Therefore, let thy sanctification descend on this, my first, and this my tenth. As she spoke, she indicated by gestures her daughter and son. Then, having ceased to bless, she ceased to live, having first bidden her children lay her body at their father's grave. But they, having fulfilled the command, clave to philosophy with still loftier resolve, even striving against their own life, and eclipsing their previous record by their subsequent successes. Basil dies after a noble career. Meanwhile, Basil, the famous saint, had been elected bishop of the great church of Caesarea. He advanced Peter to the sacred order of the priesthood, consecrating him in person with mystic ceremonial, and in this way a further advance in the direction of dignity and sanctity was made in their life now that philosophy was enriched by the priesthood. Eight years after this, the world-renowned Basil departed from men to live with God, to the common grief of his native land and the whole world. Now when Macrina heard the news of the calamity in her distant retreat, she was distressed indeed in soul at so great a loss. For how could she not be distressed at a calamity which was felt even by the enemies of the truth. But just as they say that the testing of gold takes place in several furnaces, so that if any impurity escapes the first furnace, it may be separated in the second, and again in the last one all admixture of dross may be purged away. Consequently, it is the most accurate testing of pure gold if having gone through every furnace it shows no refuse. So it happened also in her case. When her noble character had been tested by these different accessions of trouble, in every respect the metal of her soul was proved to be unadulterated and undefiled. The first test was the loss of the one brother, the second the parting from her mother, the third was when the common glory of the family, great Basil, was removed from human life. So she remained, like an invincible athlete in no wise broken from the assault of troubles. Gregory resolves to visit his sister. It was the ninth month or a little longer after this disaster, and a synod of bishops was gathered at Antioch, in which we also took part. And when we broke up, each to go home before the year was over, then I, Gregory, felt the desire to visit Macrina. For a long time had elapsed during which visits were prevented by the distraction of the troubles which I underwent, being constantly driven out from my own country by the leaders of heresy. And when I came to reckon the intervening time during which the troubles had prevented us meeting face to face, no less than eight years, or very nearly that period, seemed to have elapsed. Now, when I had accomplished most of the journey, and was one day's journey distant, a vision appeared to me in a dream and filled me with anxious anticipations of the future. I seemed to be carrying martyrs' relics in my hands. A light came from them, 
such as comes from a clear mirror when it is put facing the sun, so that my eyes were blinded by the brilliance of the rays. The same vision recurred three times that night. I could not clearly understand the riddle of the dream, but I saw trouble for my soul, and I watched carefully so as to judge the vision by events. When I approached the retreat in which Macrina led her angelic and heavenly life, first of all I asked one of the servants about my brother, whether he were at home. He told us that he had gone out four days ago now, and I understood, which indeed was the case, that he had gone to meet us by another way. Then I asked after the great lady. He said she was very ill, and I was the more eager to hurry on and complete the remainder of the journey, for a certain anxiety and premonitory fear of what was coming stole in and disquieted me. Gregory comes to the monastery and finds Macrina on her deathbed. But when I came to the actual place, rumor had already announced my arrival to the Brotherhood. Then the whole company of the men came streaming out to meet us from their apartments, for it was their custom to honor friends by meeting them. But the band of virgins on the women's side modestly waited in the church for us to arrive. But when the prayers and the blessing were over, and the women, after reverently inclining their head for the blessing, retired to their own apartments, none of them were left with us. I guessed the explanation that the abbess was not with them. A man led me to the house in which was my great sister, and opened the door. Then I entered that holy dwelling. I found her already terribly afflicted with weakness. She was lying not on a bed or couch, but on the floor. A sack had been spread on a board, and another board propped up her head, so contrived as to act as a pillow, supporting the sinews of the neck in slanting fashion, and holding up the neck comfortably. Now when she saw me near the door, she raised herself on her elbow, but could not come to meet me, her strength being already drained by fever. But by putting her hands on the floor and leaning over from the pallet as far as she could, she showed the respect due to my rank. I ran to her and embraced her prostrate form, and raising her again restored her to her usual position. Then she lifted her hand to God and said, This favor also thou hast granted me, O God, and hast not deprived me of my desire, because thou hast stirred up thy servant to visit thy handmaid. Lest she should vex my soul, she stilled her groans and made great efforts to hide, if possible, the difficulty of her breathing and in every way she tried to be cheerful, both taking the lead herself in friendly talk, and giving us an opportunity by asking questions. When in the course of conversation mention was made of the great basil, my soul was saddened, and my face fell dejectedly. But so far was she from sharing in my affliction that, treating the mention of the saint as an occasion for yet loftier philosophy, she discussed various subjects, inquiring into human affairs, and revealing in her conversation the divine purpose concealed in disasters. Besides this, she discussed the future life, as if inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that it almost seemed as if my soul were lifted by the help of her words away from mortal nature 
and placed within the heavenly sanctuary. And just as we learn in the story of Job that the saint was tormented in every part of his body with discharges owing to the corruption of his wounds, yet did not allow the pain to affect his reasoning power, but in spite of the pains in the body did not relax his activities nor interrupt the lofty sentiments of his discourse. Similarly did I see in the case of this great woman. Fever was drawing up her strength and driving her on to death, yet she refreshed her body as it were with dew, and thus kept her mind unimpeded in the contemplation of heavenly things, in no way injured by her terrible weakness. And if my narrative were not extending to an unconscionable length, I would tell everything in order. How she was uplifted as she discoursed to us on the nature of the soul, and explained the reason of life in the flesh, and why man was made, and how he was mortal, and the origin of death, and the nature of the journey from death to life again. In all of which she told her tale clearly, and consecutively, as if inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the even flow of her language was like a fountain whose water streams down uninterruptedly. She sends Gregory away to rest himself. When our conversation was finished, she said, It is time, brother, for you to rest your body a while, since it is wearied with the great toil of your journey. And though I found it a great and genuine rest to see her and hear her noble words, yet since she wanted it so much, that I might in every particular seem to obey my mistress, I found a pretty arbor prepared for me in one of the neighboring gardens, and rested under the shade of the trailing vines. But it was impossible to have any feelings of enjoyment, when my soul within me was constrained by gloomy anticipations for the secret of the vision of my dream seemed to be now revealed to me by what I had seen. For the image I had seen was indeed true. The relics of a holy martyr, which had been dead in sin, but now were resplendent with the indwelling power of the Spirit. I explained this to one of those who had heard me tell the dream before. We were, as one might guess, in a dejected state expecting sad tidings, when Macrina, somehow or other divining our condition of mind, sent to us a messenger with more cheerful news, and bade us be of good cheer, and have better hope for her, for she was feeling a change for the better. Now this was said not to deceive, but the message was actually true, though we did not know it at the time. For in very truth, just as a runner who has passed his adversary, and already drawn near to the end of the stadium, as he approaches the judge's seat and sees the crown of victory, rejoices inwardly as if he had already attained his object, and announces his victory to his sympathizers among the spectators. In such a frame of mind did she, too, tell us to cherish better hopes for her for she was already looking to the prize of her heavenly calling, and all but uttering the apostle's words, Henceforward is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge shall give me. For I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Accordingly, feeling happy at the good news, we began to enjoy the sights that lay before us.
for they were very varied and the arrangements gave much pleasure, since the great lady was careful even of these trifles. End of Part 2